good afternoon, Gary. And let me see what time it is here in Chicago. And good good morning, Jonathan. It's after midnight here. Goes to show you that once you start flying around the world, jet lag and time differences throw us I'm, all just a little bit. I'm amazed that you have any sense of what time it is at all because you've You've been. You're like a cartoon character that walks in with a suitcase with stickers all over it. Sydney, Los Angeles, New York, San Diego. It got a little bit crazy there. I mean, in, in retrospect, we may not have planned the trip that led to us being off air for the last three or four weeks all that well. I mean, it was all. Sent, I mean, from a podcast point of view, it was all centered around centered around world fantasy. But it, it was a family trip and everything. It did see me mm-hmm. crossing America a bunch of times and I'm flying to New York and then back and then back again and then back to L.A. and all this sort of thing. So it was pretty crazy and for the most part left me exhausted. Uh, I'm very happy that we were able to put up the podcast that we recorded in Reno with, um, with Ian and Al and Stan because you know it just, it just covered a time when it was going to be very difficult to be recording. I did m- manage to record... Uh, one pod, uh, a podcast with, you know, for, with with my other friend, Alisa. Mm-hmm. We recorded a mm-hmm. very interesting podcast that we just published uh, with Alan Beats from Borderlands Walks, mm-hmm. talking uh, where we talk discuss um, Amazon and its role in the world at the moment and some of his prognostications. And it's really actually it's the most interesting conversation I had at World Fantasy. It completely changed. All, Alan, the thing about Alan as a bookseller is that he, he does math as well as anybody I know about mm. this industry. He does. He, he understands out the numbers uh, in ways that are almost uh, uh, irrefutable. It seems to me. Well, yeah, he's a, he's a so, businessman. He's a very well, sensible he, logically. And he looks and he goes, he understands how many shelf feet of bookstore he has, what his costs are, how much per shelf foot of books he has to you know, sell to make money and all this kind of thing. And it really made me think very closely about something that I'd not thought about much, which was the whole choosing to vote with your, your dollars. You know, look at the kind of mm-hmm. book future that you want and vote accordingly. Because the way he put it, and even he would say there's an element, I believe, of hyperbole in it. Imagine you, that... You're somebody who buys five books a year, right? Mm-hmm. If everybody who buys five books a year buys one of those books as a digital book online, every bookstore in the world goes out of business. That's the kind of math I'm talking about. I don't know what his figures are, but I suspect it, it, it's a very simple. Right. It's a very simple thing. It says that if if one in five books are bought digitally, not through a on, through a physical bookstore, that's a twenty percent drop in profit or turnover, in mm-hmm. fact. No right. bookstore, he said, and I'm, I believe him, he's got the, the background, no bookstore has the ability to withstand that. You know, so they would all go, go, go bust, or the vast majority of them. And he did say, though I think, again, he was using a little bit of hyperbole, that he would be surprised if there were many bookstores of any kind left at all within 20 years. He may be right, and of course he's opened that cafe next to Borderlands. Yes. Uh, while we're doing this, we might as well tell people that if you're on the West Coast, Borderlands is the most impressive genre bookstore yeah. I've seen on the West Coast. And the flaw in his reasoning is probably this, that not all bookstores are going to fail equally. No, I mean, that's essentially true. what's yeah. happened in Chicago is that I'd say 80% of the used bookstores are gone. Yeah. Um, and that may be true generally. But there are some that succeed. The, yeah. the ones near the university... Um, uh, specialty bookstores. Borderlands has a very loyal clientele. I know a lot of the people who go in there. 
You go in there because you can talk about books with people, and sure. that's what stories used to be. Oh, yeah, and here's the cafe there to make that possible. Right, exactly. The other thing about it, you know, I mean, he, one thing he said, and sort of people can go listen to the podcast if they want to, uh, was that he expects that the rare book dealing side of it will improve rather than deteriorate because people will want to get the particularly beautiful editions or the rare. I mean, like when I was at World Fantasy, which we will touch on, mm-hmm. I bought like I bought three books at World Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I defy you to guess what any of them were, so I'll just simply tell you rather than that. I bought a copy of Karen Lord's Redemption in, in, in Indigo, mm-hmm. which I actually had not read, to my great shame. But mm-hmm. Karen was there. She's so delightful. Okay. Um, oh, she's just great. Bought her book. I bought Delia Sherman's new book, The Freedom Maze, mm-hmm. which looks absolutely terrific. One of the highlights of my whole trip, the whole three weeks when I was away, was when Marianne and my two daughters, Jessica and Sophie, went to her and Ellen Kushner's house or apartment mm-hmm. uh, for dinner in New York, which was just beautiful. It's and a I, wonderful location, yeah. Yeah. Have you been there to the house? Uh, only once. Okay. And I bought a, admittedly a second or third printing, but a, first, a signed first edition of The Dispossessed. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That sort of thing impresses me. Um, and I think you're right. I think the, the specialty presses, because we talked about our friends at Subterranean or our <laughs> friends at Old Earth or people who, who publish really lovely editions of books that you want, you, even if you've got a copy online. And I haven't done this yet, but I can see the day coming when, um, when I have a book which I'm very fond of, that I have a digital copy of, and I, I see it in the bookstore or I see it at a con, and I think, I really want to have that object because yeah. what I have is a text – Yes. It's, it's, it's pixels. I don't have an object. Yes, and I crave yeah. it a little bit. You bet. Exactly. Um, I mean, this, this happened. To, I was talking to Ger, Ger, Gerard Walters, who's a proprietor of Centipede Press. Another gorgeous. And that was it. They've just published these two gorgeous Fritz Library prints: Our Lady of Darkness and oh, how can I go blank on it? Uh, Our Lady of Darkness and the one that goes with it, Conjure Wife. Conjure Wife. As beautiful, beautiful hardcovers, and they still have the beautiful John Brunner books that they did a while ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, I, I sat there going, I mean, I can really see the logic behind what Alan was saying. So, you know, that was, that conversation was the highlight in terms of science fiction and everything of the entire long weekend in San Diego. Well, tell me about the long weekend in San Diego. This is the first world fantasy I've missed. Well, it's the second one I missed in the last several years, I guess. I didn't go to Calgary either. Well, let, uh, let, let me take you back, Gary. Let me take you way, way back to, to October the 23rd or something when I arrived there. First of all, I'd never been to San Diego before. And mm-hmm. having flown in from New York, I fell in love with it right away. It's beautiful. It's right by the, the uh, on, on the coast. It was cool. It was lovely. We went to this very strange place. It was, it was a resort, of, uh, the town and country resort spread out over an enormous area. They had two separate towers of apartments and then a sprawling motel complex just about. Um, it was difficult to find anybody when you were there. The The great failing of it was that despite what everybody requires of World Fantasy, I mean, if you ask any, or any regular f- World Fantasy attendee, What's the one thing you need to make sure the World Fantasy will be a success? What do you think would be the first thing they'd say they need? A bar. Guess what they didn't have, Gary? A bar? They didn't have a good bar, no. They had three separate bars, but uh, the one that was supposed to be uh, open all the time and stay up late was not great and also didn't wasn't open the whole time. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and because you had these diverse locations, you just couldn't find anybody. So you'd see somebody. I saw Theodore Goss for like two minutes from in a dis from a distance. Uh-huh. I saw John Joseph Adams and his his new wife Christy Yant a couple of times in the distance. I only found out that Charlie Jane Andrews was there at the World Fantasy Banquet. I think it must have been. So that kind of mm. stuff really threw it. And what it m- m- meant was that you were thrown back on your own social group. Now, on one hand, that was great because there was a big Australian contingent there and there was mm-hmm. a big locust contingent. And I don't see any of those people enough, so I can certainly keep myself busy you know, spending time with them. There was a big, big uh, Australian party on the Thursday night, and those things are always a lot of fun and people seem to enjoy it. Though, again, as you might have heard, there was some controversy surrounding that relating to an attendee of the convention acting inappropriately who had to be asked to leave. There was a rather strange attendee. One of the accounts yeah. I read uh, had you looking rather noble, I guess, in your handling I, of the situation. I, I go, go that far, but it, you know, he was asked to leave, and then when he wasn't, he was escorted off the premises, uh, which was un- it's a very unfortunate thing because it's not something that I really associate with world fantasy or most of the conventions I go to, but I've, I've come to accept that it's far more common than we expect, and you, all of us do have to kind of take a stand against it, unfortunately. Not yeah. unfortunately because it's the right thing, but just because it, you prefer it didn't happen, I guess. Um, the program, well, I'm never a good judge of a, of a convention program, as you know. I don't usually go to convention programs much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people seemed not especially engaged by it. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was just a bit of a, it, of all the world fantasies that I've been to, it was the one that you could miss. And I would say that I've, over the last five to ten years, five years or so, I've come to depend on world fantasy to be the convention that really energizes me for the, for the coming year. And I think. Yeah, but, I, I, I felt the same way. I certainly, as, as I told you before, I was at my granddaughter's bat mitzvah and yeah. ended up not missing being there because huh? I had a wonderful time with family yeah, and, which so is great. and so on. And I, I guess it's true for you when you when you mention the Australian party. I keep forgetting that a lot of your Australian friends you don't get to see unless you come to the states because oh. they're still a continent away. Exactly. So you know, I I spent time with Garth Nix, who's a very dear friend of mine, Sean Williams, who I've known for twenty years, and I'm his very close friend. Um, James Bradley, who mm-hmm. I met through Sean, was there, and we. I mean, Elisa was there. A whole bunch of other people. I'm not going to offend all the people who I didn't name, so I apologize. Uh, you know, Kirsten and Jason and everybody. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time. The convention was great. We spent time together. There was a pre-thing dinner. I had some great times, with, particularly with Liza uh, from Locus, uh, our editor and publisher, who was great company. It was good to catch up with her about recommended reading lists and stuff. But the buzz that you want to come off the convention, even with great things happening, with Elisa winning her World Fantasy Award. Wonderful. Uh, which, was, which was great. I was delighted for her. Um... Even with that, it was just a bit flat, I think, and it was it was just the physical location that did it, I think. It can do that. It's a kind of convention that I. It's, if the way you're describing it sounds like the kind of convention that I've come to think of as a J.G. Ballard convention, <laughs> where you have massive, disorienting hotels that that seem to be proliferating as you're there, and 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 people wandering around enormous spaces disconnected from one another and hoping that they'll recognize somebody and thinking maybe I've seen this yeah. person before. Um, I mean, this is what this is what I associate with with world cons. Yeah. Uh, because of their sheer size, they need spaces like that. Yeah. But but it it, it can be disorienting, and it sounds uh, it it sounds a lot less intimate than 
Uh, oh yeah, some of the ones I've really liked. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I I liked Columbus, which was a small venue. I really liked Saratoga Springs in New York, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was like having a small town to yourself. Yeah. Um, and but th- that's that's what I've always associated with world fantasy is a sense of intimacy that's completely different from the sense you usually get from a massive rambling world con. Exactly. And I mean, the, the hotel I say was strange because on the surface of it, it was actually quite nice looking. You know, you'd wander around, you're going through these rose gardens, there's like roses and flowers blooming everywhere, there are swimming pools, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but you couldn't get a drink out by the pool. I, oh, I, sat, no. around, I sat around having a conversation with a couple of people, and we spent 45 minutes trying to buy drinks, and you just could not. I mean, the convention bar had one bartender for the whole night, and oh. there was no, it was just impractical. The whole thing was vastly impractical. So that was unfortunate, you know, uh, and also... I guess to reiterate something I was saying before we started recording, I wasn't well when I left Australia, and I still really wasn't well by the time I got to World Fantasy. So mm-hmm. being on well and having it not really hit its stride the way you would expect it to undercut the whole thing. So all I can do is say that I'm delighted. I mean, congratulations to the World Fantasy Award winners, particularly our friends who won. That was great. Thank you to everybody who was great company. And we'll go to Toronto, where you'll be busy, and I'll hardly get to see you, I guess. Oh, I'm not going to be that busy, I don't think, but I don't know yet. You're going to have to write speed. For everybody who doesn't know, the Toronto World Fantasy, which happens, what, next, first week of November? Last week of October. I believe. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's always around Halloween. Yeah, so it's, it's on, yeah, November 1 to 4. Okay. So November 1 to 4 in Toronto, and you, Gary K. Wolf, will be Toastmaster. Oh, that'll be well. I, and I owe our friend Peter Hallis, who's was organizing the convention, for inviting me to do that because yep. I'm sure because our other good friends, Liz Hand and uh, and John Clute, are, are are the guests. So yes. there's a nice northern theme to it. Yeah. I gather it's it, it, it's in a smaller venue. And now that I'm thinking about uh, what you've just described to me and what we're thinking about in terms of conventions in two large spaces, I gather the Toronto one is actually out of the city, which mm. at first seemed like inconvenient yeah uh but on the other hand it does give you a sense of owning the hotel of owning the space of, of having a party with your friends yes uh which is what i like about the the, the smaller yeah. ones we've been at yeah. so so it, it should be a lot of fun i hope it will be anyway fingers crossed i mean i, I, I did hear yeah i did hear from a number of people that that connie willis's job as toastmaster was as masterful as always you're so and screwed it you gotta be that good Thank you, Connie. I get to follow you. I'm, I'm calling you up for material. Oh, yes. it's good. And what's more, I, I think I'll, this time, I hope Elisa listens to this podcast. What we'll do is we'll get those little cards made up. You know, like, let's have like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And we'll get Elisa and myself and maybe Liza and we'll sit in the front row and we'll score you as you go. What do you think? Um, yeah, well, you can stay home too. There's that. There's that. <laughs> You know, you'll make a joke. We'll sort of flash up, you know, three, that kind of thing. You'll you'll feel got, you'll feel loved. Well, they've had. Uh, let's see, Guy K was uh, the Toastmaster one one year. Yes, did, did a great, great job. job. Yeah. Ani, uh, I forgot who did the Toastmaster job in Columbus, but uh, uh, they're they're all really good. I don't know if I yes. should have agreed to this. Well, you know, I, I did sort of a little part. I mean, whilst I have great faith in your ability to do it, I will and do a great job. I will say a little part of me went. Boy, you're sticking your hands up for a bit of work. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. I mean, that's great. It's an honor. I think. I'm delighted that you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, everybody come to Toronto. That's a good idea. Yes, and in fact, 
Oh, is it too late? Oh, I think we are. Uh, I'd meant to... No, was that, was that Brighton? I'm mumbling now because uh, there was or there is a membership increase. Maybe it's already just happened. Uh, yeah, it just happened last week, I think, uh, oh. for World Fantasy memberships. But everybody sh- should buy their membership as soon as they can. The people who are involved are great. And I've heard little whispers about future conventions. I probably shouldn't say, but I even heard a whisper that someone's talking about going back to Saratoga. Uh-huh. Which would make me happy. Um, but, you know, sort of we've got you know, Toronto and Brighton, which will be enough to keep us all busy, I think. Oh, so. yeah. And in Brighton will be a lot of fun as well. So, so these are still uh, my favorite conventions. And um, mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I, 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 well, I shouldn't say... My favorite conventions. Per- p- conventions have different personalities. The two conventions I go to that you that you have not been to that feel like family reunions are yes. the International Conference on the Fantastic in Florida and ReaderCon, which yep. again is in a remote suburb of Boston, but you know it's 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 got a great bar. And then yes. the, the, without that bar, one year we had a ReaderCon and the bar was under uh, construction huh. or something, and it was it was horrible. We had to go to the restaurant to get drinks. I've got to say as well, just just quickly, there was obviously some kind of conspiracy amongst the judges for this year's World Fantasy Awards, you know. A conspiracy for? Well, almost no man won. Um, <laughs> sorry. I oh, that's well. well I, I mean, well, I just looked down the list. The Lifetime Achievement Awards, which were hugely deserved, went to Peter hmm. Beagle and Angelica Garodisher. Right. Our friend Nedia Korafor won for Who Fears Death, which is just a absolutely. wonderful thing. She was stunned by that. She was absolutely in shock. A great book. It's a terrific book. Vastly deserving. I mean, a good ballot, a great ballot, but she was very deserving. I've been delighted to see any one of a whole bunch of those books win, so I was very pleased. Of course, Liz Hand won for Best Novella. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Joyce Carol Oates for Best Short Story. Kate Bernheimer for Best Anthology. Karen Fowler for Best Collection. Kanuka Craft for Best Artist. You see, Elisa Krasnerstein for Special Award Non-Professional. And then there was the token man, Mark Gascoigne, who won for Best Professional. There could be a pattern to that. There, there on the other hand, there is. They just, they just, that's what won. On the other hand, there could have been a pattern for many years before this in which very few women won. So it's... That, well, uh, let me look. Let's let's go back to the year before. Oh, well, actually, there's Karen Fowler winning again, and but mm. but you know, yeah, I, I'm not going to do that. I agree completely. I was just being silly. I think there, that actually was a, a very good ballot and a great slate of winners, and congratulations to everybody. It was it was one of the few ballots I've seen where I looked down the the list of nominees and thought I'm not really going to be disappointed at whatever happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't expect to be as delighted as I. I mean, I Nettie absolutely delighted me because she's a friend. She lives here in the sure, Chicago sure. area. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Graham Joyce was on the ballot. Yes. It, it was a strong, strong ballot. Uh, and he was there at the convention. It was great to see him. Mm-hmm. As was Guy Kay. Um, spent some time with Guy, which is always enormous fun. So, yeah, it was great. It was great. He actually sort of he, – he's become my, my touchstone. I, I go to him for uh, mainstream fiction recommendations to read when I'm not spending all my time going mad doing anthologies. Guy is one of the people that I, – because I uh, – I, I get to see him far too infrequently, mm. but uh, he, he's, he's one of the writers that I find fascinating to talk to. And, uh, well, putting him in the same company as, 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 as a legend, Ursula is like this as well. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the writers in our field who read a lot of things out of the field, yeah. uh, 
but read them with that kind of sensibility. Read. Uh, we were talking, for example, uh, with Ursula a little bit about Margaret Atwood's, even her mainstream, her early mainstream novels had some vaguely fantastic sensibility to them. Yes. And so when you get somebody like Guy who's very much involved with uh, with mainstream issues, uh, uh, most of the uh, British writers I know seem to read widely. It, it's absolutely fascinating to get to get their take because you're talking to them as literary figures, not as genre figures. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in, in the case of the people who have as much prominence as Guy does in Canada, he's one of the major writers in Canada, and everybody right. in Canada seems to know that. Yes. And he, he absolutely should be recognized that way. But but it puts us into a different set of discussions than we have with people who read all the same stuff we read. <laughs> Oh, the stuff we read. Speaking of the stuff we read, Gary, what have you been up to while I've been away? Oh, not... Well, okay, what I've been up to since you've been away, apart from my granddaughter's bat mitzvah, this is a part of the semester where I complain to everybody who listen until they <laughs> stop me, that I have... I have a, I teach a senior thesis class. They have to turn in a rough draft of a paper. It has to be 20 to 25 pages, and there are 25 students. Now, you can do the math, and I have to get the papers back in a week. Yeah. It's, five, it's roughly 500 pages of closely marked papers, and the last one of which I sent back earlier. So I've barely done anything else. I've been working on uh, another project, which we'll be able to talk about in another few weeks. I was doing some reading for Locust, but not a lot. I do yeah. have the new Will McIntyre novel, which I think is McIntosh. very interesting. McIntosh. Hmm? McIntosh. You know what? Why <laughs> do I keep saying McIntosh? I have no idea, dude, but I thought I'd better get, get it before you continued on too much. Well, there's a Macintosh. Well, the, anyway. I, 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 I guess I'm trying to avoid confusing him with J.T. Macintosh, the 50s science fiction writer. But whatever. So yeah. Well, anyway, Will McIntyre. Sorry, Tosh. Will. Tosh. Macintosh. 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 Did I say McIntyre again? You did. He's not going to change his name just for you. <laughs> okay. From now on, he's Will. Our friend Will. Dear Will. Okay. Our friend Will. Yep. Uh, his second novel is completely different from his first in Excellent. all kinds of interesting ways. And I like that. I like writers who come out with a second novel that is not what you'd expected. Uh, one of the uh, one of the writers I was reviewing, I guess, I, I, a month or so ago, the new short story uh, collection, the first short story collection mm-hmm. from Daryl Gregory. Um, and I remember in reading that, I was thinking, I'd read a lot of these stories when they came out, and I thought they were terrific. And then his first novel came out, and I thought that was terrific, but it was unlike the stories. Yes. And and his second novel was completely unlike the first, and his third novel was completely unlike the first and the second. Yep. Uh, and that strikes me as a sign, and I'm thinking the same thing about Will, uh, of somebody mm-hmm. who might have a career, uh, so, somebody who's who's not trying to repeat the same uh, sort of tropes that they worked with at the same time, the same, the same kind of structure. Somebody who's not starting off, and I have no fault to call for people who want to start off with trilogies. But basically, if you start off with a trilogy, if your career starts off with a trilogy, which every agent and publisher wants you to do, I'm sure, that means your first three novels oh, yeah. are essentially in the same territory. You bet. And by, by then your readers are wanting to know, okay, what else can you do? And sometimes that mm. has stymied people. Well, it has. It's also, I mean, I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate for half a second and say, not always the case in the sense that, yes, you are staking out a particular territory, but it has worked extraordinarily well, particularly in the epic fantasy area for people. You know, yes. Um, it's not. I don't know that it's. 
no, make no comment about science fiction, but I mean, I was just looking at, uh, thinking about the world of fantasy, and Robert Reddick was there, and he's uh, been caught in a, you know, a, well, he's been doing fantasy trilogies, that's his first batch of stuff. Scott Lynch yeah. was there, same story, he's been doing his um, Gentleman Thieves thing or whatever, Gentleman Bastards, I think it is, sequence. And so he's had the same kind of commitment to the same stuff, it's worked very well. But there is, some, not every reader is looking for the thing you're going to do differently. That's our kind of reader. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to sort of put a value judgment on that. It's just the way that I read and the way I think you tend to read, um, we're looking for the different thing rather than a continuation of what we've previously enjoyed. I like to be surprised by writers, and that doesn't mean that writers can't surprise me by doing things within a series that are completely unexpected. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for heaven's sake, George Martin did that consistently and, and is still doing it, I gather, with the last volume. Yes. Um, but then George has also, uh, he's had an interesting career where it went in all kinds of different directions. And by the time the Song of Ice and Fire started coming out, I don't think anybody really expected that from him. No. You know, he'd, he'd written fairly romantic, lyrical science fiction. He'd written uh, horror stories that mm-hmm. were very effective. He'd written uh, sort of apocalyptic fantasies that were... Uh, uh, so he was completely all over the map. He'd worked in Hollywood. You couldn't see that coming. And that's point, point A. Point B is that he clearly had worked that out. Now, when somebody works out of three or four or five volume series even, I'm thinking mm-hmm. maybe Daniel Abrahams, um, as a single work, that's, I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. Um, if, when it turns into the wheel of time is when I start having a problem. Oh, the, there are other examples. Yeah. It becomes a performance rather than, it becomes more an act of performance than of invention. That sure, can happen sure. with serious books. Well, I can think of other examples. I mean, I think about Ken Scholes. Uh, who's a good yeah. writer, and his first, uh, you know, the series that he's doing, the, the Songs of I- Psalms of Isaac, is very, mm-hmm. very good. But it's a five-book set, and you get that commitment over a period of time, and suddenly, for the first five or six years of your career, yes, that's that, that's the thing. And in fact, for a long time, this very issue kept me away from Steven Erickson, because of course mm-hmm. he's doing a 10-volume series, you know, going on for some two or three million words. And, you know, if you're not immediately... Entranced by that, then it means it's a long time before you're going to come check him out again. Well, part of part of my problem, frankly, is uh, in fairness to all these writers, because certainly some of the great works of the mm. genre have been in multi-volume series. Oh, sure, I mean, the sure. first person that comes to mind is, is Gene Wolfe, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the problem is that when you're under pressure to review stuff every month, then do you really want to commit yourself to going to taking up? increasingly large chunks of your column with the same series, unless yeah. it does unexpected things. Yes. Um, I'll give you an example of a series which I admire a lot, but I stopped reading it. Um, was Naomi Novik's Dragon yes. series. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, absolutely enjoyed the first one and the second one, and she does very interesting things with the material. But mm-hmm. after a while, you want to see... You know, I don't know if... I, I, I don't know what Naomi Novik does other than this. She does this really, really, really well. Yeah, but there was a point at which, by the fourth or fifth volume in, I couldn't devote the time I needed to follow that series. And if I were to do that with all the series that are out there, I'd be doing nothing but reading continuations. Yes, for the rest of my life. And yeah. I think you could probably do that. And I think some people probably do that, and they probably love it. Yes, and more power to them. I find actually what I end up doing, and it makes me an odd reader, I guess, is that I'll even sometimes I'll, I'll read the first book of a series that I like and I just won't read the rest of the series even though I like the first book. 
because it's like I feel like mm-hmm. I, even though I really enjoyed it, I feel like I've done that and I want to go read something else. You know, it, it happens. Mm-hmm. But uh, so okay, you you, uh, you were reading Will well, Ma- I guess Will, you read Will McIntosh's book. Yeah. You liked that, I assume. Mm-hmm. What else you been reading? This is not really going well. Come on, what else? What else you been reading? Go on. Well, send me something. Okay, I should tell. Well, you and I have talked about this, and Liza and I have talked about this, and this is uh, this is always kind of a publishing doldrums where you get into. You know, we're not talking in our genre about big Christmas books by and large. Yeah. Um, and so, and then after that, you're into January, which everybody knows is is a, is, is a dead space. This year doesn't seem to be, um, you know, that active in terms of uh, interesting new things. Now, uh, the things that I've looked at recently, the Al Reynolds novel, uh, I'm, I'm still the Stan Robinson novel is not out for a while yet. Yeah. Um, the um, certainly the Ian McDonald Plains Runner, which was one of probably the most fun I've had in the last couple of months but those are not going to be out in the states i think until what the spring or summer uh plans runner should be out in a couple of weeks oh in the states okay good yeah. well in okay. fact i believe it's only coming out in the states at the moment so oh, that's right plans runner is only in the states but it's coming out from uh pyre in december so it'll probably ship i'm guessing i've not looked the first week of the of the, of the month um mm-hmm. and gets i think both of our highest recommendation so, yeah, I have been reading a lot of exciting stuff, just not in the last couple of weeks. I was in a massive depression from not being able to go to World Fantasy, so I decided that I was going to read. <laughs> that's, not the most credible, that's not the most no, credible not, thing that you've said. I'm not, sorry, no. Um, and it, look, it's not like there, there hasn't been a lot of other interesting stuff. Um, I must admit, I've been reading short fiction. I, I'm not going to give any opinion on this, but I will say simply that I, I've read my first 2012 anthology already. So it's already mm-hmm. next. It's already next year, Gary. <laughs> as you know. Yes, I know. Um, I, I, sh- I should mention as a parenthesis, I've been reading some stuff um, for the. I'm a judge for the Shirley Jackson Awards this year, I so I've been getting a lot of stuff in the mail. So some of the short fiction which you're familiar with that I would not have caught up with, like the Joan Aiken collection, for example, mm-hmm. have been a lot of fun to read. Yes, there have been some, well. There have been some spectacularly good collections this year. I mean, this is beginning to uh, touch on something which I, I think we're, we're going to be a little bit careful about going too close to. But the whole issue of um, uh, you know, year in review reading and stuff, um, yeah. which is a process we're just embarking on. Uh, I mean, for, for, the, for the listeners who have been you know, long-time listeners to the show, to the podcast, they'll well know that you and I spend you know months, it seems, slaving away on various recommended reading lists. And this is the season when it begins in earnest. Mm. Uh, and rather than go back and touch on the, all of those things again or preempt ourselves too much, that's where our attention is turning. But it also means that I, I completed my year's best reading uh, just mm-hmm. just last month. I put together so the contents. Of, the contents are finished. We can no, say no. You cannot say that. You mad mm-hmm. mad man, because <laughs> you know some people can't let me have their stories and all that kind of thing. So I have to go around and look around. And I found one last minute story that I'm trying to get into the book. So I've, I'm, it's kind of like mostly together. Uh, this coming week, now that I'm back from far away America, I, I will have my head down every day hammering out story notes and introductions and um, finalizing deals for, this, for, for the actual stories and all that sort of thing. And hopefully by the end of the week, I will have a rough manuscript for the book. Because mm-hmm. that's about how long it takes me to go from having a list and a set of bad ideas to a 240,000 word book. 
that I can then hand in for copy editing. I hope I can do it by the end of the week because uh, I really, really need to. Um, yes. But that means, of course, I can now officially draw draw a line under 2011. It means if for some reason I didn't see anything, I now won't read it. Um, unless, uh, but I, well, I do a little bit because, you know, there's the Locust Recommended Reading list to worry about. I'm going to get at that tomorrow as well and start thinking about things that are missing and things I've read and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm yeah. finding it amazing. and I'm sure, I'm sure some of our listeners who don't get advanced copies who do anthologies are thinking that most of us are gearing up to think about what's the best of 2011 and you're having to start worrying about what's the best of 2012. Well, I mean, I've had people, I've had friends recommend that I take a couple of months off reading short fiction at about this mm. time of the year. But the first thing that happens is I have to finish the, the, the year's best, and mm. Locus quite reasonably needs my attention, and I kind of have to, you know, you know sort of have, have a look at what comes in. And then, just as I'm ready to kind of go, okay, now I'm going to kick back and read novels, you start thinking, well, I've now got two or three issues of, of FNSF and Asimov's kicking around, and I've got a couple anthologies, and they're starting to build up. And if I let them build up, come June, I'm going to be crying again that I'm right. overwhelmed. So you, you can't really give yourself too much time off. But I am reading novels, or at least novel excerpts. I mean, I started reading the new Stephen King book on the plane. Mm-hmm. This is the JFK book. Which I gather handles time travel in a fairly logical and insensible way. Yeah. In the little bit that I've read so far, yeah, it seems to. Um and the general word on the book seems very promising, though it's very big. Mm-hmm. I also was looking at Anthony Horowitz's Sherlock Holmes novel, mm-hmm. which looks quite interesting as well. Uh, and I was also reading a book that, uh, called The Shallows about reading about the internet that Guy Kay recommended to me. And the anthology that I read, about which I will say nothing because it's next year's, was Onto the Moons of Mars, which is John Adams's uh, mm-hmm. Edgar Rice Burroughs anthology. So... But actually, the book that I'm, when I think about it, the genre right now that I'm most eager to read based on the review has to be Delia Sherman's Freedom Maze, which sounds great. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying try to. Yeah. And also, for other reasons, I'm trying to catch up with some books that came out last year that mm. I didn't see. I mean, the, yeah. the Night Circus, which was published clearly as a mainstream book, has gotten a lot of attention. Yep. But seems to. It, it's, it always fascinates me when a book that gets essentially uh, promoted as a non genre book seems to work both ways. I yeah. mean, I think Lev Grossman's novels, for example, are examples. Yes. This sounds like one. So there's that. There's Mechanique, which is another uh, novel that I've not read yet. And I'm trying to catch up with these, but it sounds like there seems to be a lot of magic circus novels around this past yes. year. And as, a, and as I've admitted in terms of prejudices, I'm not the biggest fan of the magic circus story. Uh, I mean, you get good ones. I mean, you know, Bradbury wrote a pretty good one, which I liked. But I mean, other than that, I mean, I've not been that sort of taken with it. But, you know, uh, there are other sort of – it is that sort of time where the publishing world seems to make us stop and take focus. The, the new stuff coming isn't quite so overwhelming. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little bit less short fiction coming out. I mean, there have been changes in the short fiction field. I don't know if we should touch on those. The first being, of course, the, the final what, – what I think is the final closure of Realms of Fantasy – which has at least one sad note in it that apparently, according to the editorial that was that came out, Shauna McCarthy is retiring from editing, which is sad which is, because she was terrific as, uh, at Asimov's. Absolutely. And she's been terrific for, what, 30-some 30, 30 years now? Yes. Um, so um, that's, that, that, that is a sadness. Although Realms of Fantasy itself is the most zombie-like magazine I've ever seen. It keeps coming back. Well, actually, I don't know. If you think about this, the... 
other magazines have changed hands in the background. We're not really talking about this stuff too much. So it's interesting that we're mm-hmm. finally beginning to find a bit of a, a, a topic because think about this. Realms of Fantasy, you say, is one that comes back the most. It just came back the most often in a short period of time. You know, it died and it was born. It was born was died, born and died, born and died, like three times in a few years. Right. And you have to assume it's now finally laid to rest. Uh, but surely, oh, uh, Weird Tales Weird, has Weird been Tales resurrected has, more often than any magazine at all. And is the record for resurrection because it's been resurrected. Let's see, it originally died in, what, yes. 1954 or something? Yeah. And, and has been, what, a half dozen times since then. And has now uh, gone away, changed hands again. Mm-hmm. And that means that Anne Vandermeer, who's been doing a, a very, very fine job with the magazine, is no longer associated with it, and it's going back much, you know, you know, towards its sort of older kind of, uh, you know, philosophy that it had mm-hmm. prior to that iteration of the magazine, and that's less interesting to me as a reader. So I'm, I'm sad to see that. I'm sad to see Anne, although I know she's very active with, in, in the anthology she, work she does. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in charge of a magazine anymore because I think that's been a great thing for the field. Uh, I also note that John Adams has bought Lightspeed and Fantasy from Prime Press and is now both the editor and publisher of those magazines. Yep. So that that's a change. I, I have no idea what the actual impact of that will be over time. But I, I, I assume, though I don't know this, that it may result, I guess, in John doing more and more work on the magazines and slightly less anthology work. We didn't discuss it, but I could see that happening because once you own the business, you have a whole other set of concerns and focuses. Um, so, so those are interesting sort of small changes. That said, I was talking with... Who was I was talking... I was asked just in the last while about what I thought about the state of the health of short fiction by a friend of, my, mm-hmm. of Marianne's. A uh, chap who works in the comic business, and I said, you know, like it remains as it has been for the last handful of years. In one sense, the art of the field, the art of short fiction in the field, is still in robust good health. Everything yes. else is in chaos. Frankly, you know, I think that's true. I, the, the thing that uh, this, this always comes up, and it's it, it's interesting because one of the things that one of the ways I love to trace this is if you go back. For some reason, uh, the nebula, annual nebula anthologies always have the state of the art and fiction. They sometimes have roundtables. They sometimes have introductions. Mm. And going back as far as I can remember since they've been doing this, the state of short fiction has always been a, you know, an, a state of imminent cat- catastrophe, always with the caveat that the fiction being written is as good as ever, probably better in some ways, certainly more complex, sure. and is still getting published. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, so I, I, I'm not convinced that somebody writing a really good short story two or three years from now uh, will have difficulty placing it. Uh, well, the, 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 these, here's where we're going to split and we, we call back, uh, refer back to the thing about Alan Beats's conversation and everything else. Uh-huh. I don't think you'll have any trouble placing sh- uh, short fiction. You may have difficulty placing it usefully, though. And hmm. by, by that I mean placing it in such a way that it finds a readership. Okay, that's different. I, I, I completely agree. And uh, you know, every once in a while, somebody will sell a story to the to the New Yorker or, uh, or or some literary journal, and then you know, people like you have to track them down in unlikely places. Yeah. Uh, what you're essentially saying is it may be harder to find short fiction to read than it is to find places to sell good short fiction. Yes, very much, very much. The problem might be for us readers, not for the as much for the readers as for the writers, at least. Well, yes, I mean because everybody's aware of the fact that 
one it, it seems to make sense to publish short fiction as one shots kind of thing. And mm-hmm. if you're going to publish them as one shots, you're going to go through Amazon singles, that kind of thing. Then, how do you promote them to you know, in some kind of coherent way so they get a large readership? You you bring along the readership that that person already has. I mean, this exactly. takes us to, directly to our friend Cecilia Cecilia Holland and her success with her essay through Amazon singles. But that's because she had a very significant readership. Uh, right. Whether you'll see that. You know, sort of for somebody else who has no significant you know, readership on you know, already in, in, in train is a whole other question, and I'm very unsure how that's going to go. How you're going to build, how a new writer will build a name. That's that's going to be a challenge to work out what that that model will be, and also how how you'll manage the the incredible flood of stuff that will be coming at your average reader from you know in the coming in the coming period of time. Well, this goes back to the point that I've uh, made and you've made before, that when I'm reading short fiction, uh, if I'm going to a venue that features short, short fiction, mm. I still like to read a story if I believe somebody else has read it before I have and has selected it for being worth reproducing. Yeah. Which is a little bit different from uh, a, a lot of – uh, you're right. Cecilia is very successful with Amazon singles. First of all, it's a very good short book. It's very relevant. It's timely. It's it's a length of short fiction, which is almost impossible to sell anywhere else. And it stands out because here's a very distinguished writer, really one of America's best historical yes. novelists, uh, in, in this venue, which is basically largely filled with things you've never heard of by people yes. you've never heard of. Uh, what are those people going to do? I don't know. If you were somebody, if you were a young writer today, I'm thinking of somebody who's, who's made a somebody who's made a very good reputation in the last few years. Um, with short fiction is, is Rachel Swarsky. Yes. Uh, if she were starting today, would it be, when she started, it wasn't that easy, but if she were starting today, would it be significantly more difficult for her to gain the reputation that she's gained? No, I think the last couple of years are about a wash, is my feeling, but I think it's getting harder. I think over the next five years, you'll begin to see it get harder, is my feeling. Um, it could be. Um, I don't know. It, it's very hard to, to sort of guess where it's going to, how it's going to play out I still think the stuff will be the work will be there I still think a, a writer like that will be able to get published and find a readership but it's going to be just a bit harder which is unfortunate do you think this puts some kind of added pressure on some of the old standby editors like Gordon Van Gelder for example or Sheila Williams that suddenly they are uh, is, is, is it going to be good or bad for them I guess is the question well, I, I think that's a very difficult question to answer, and I think it's going to come down to how well they adapt to the digital world. I think mm-hmm. the one thing you're going to begin to see is the, the bit-by-bit disappearance of non-digital short fiction. Uh, sadly, I think it's going to become a real rarity uh, over the coming decade, and I think FNSF's success will be dependent on how well it's able to leverage its electronic issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I mean, we've talked often about the the success for Locus about getting a, a good digital issue up. Uh, you yeah. can see uh, Sheila Williams talks very positively about the impact of their digital editions. And so as long as they can keep doing that, then I think the readership will go with it, particularly since once you're up on a big subscription site like Amazon, then you automat- everything automatically downloads. You don't have to think about yeah. buying it. It's all very easy. So that works to your, your vast advantage. Outside of that, geez, I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
there, well, the, I, I the models still haven't one. settled down. Oh yeah, I, I, I think things are completely unsettled, and I, uh, the one thing I've I've noticed in the last uh, oh twenty years probably, including all the predictions that our friend Charles used to make, is that nobody, well, the the famous quotation from William Goldman in his book about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. No, uh, no. Every every prediction turns out to be wonky in some way. It turns out to be off center in some way. Yeah. I mean, one of the when you mention okay, what if all fiction, what if all short fiction goes to digital? And I go back to thinking about what we were talking about earlier. With you like to buy books, you like to have physical objects because they're beautiful objects. And I was thinking, um, okay, the the the, the Daryl Gregory collection, impossible, is <clears throat> a bunch of short stories. I'm glad to have it. You know, I certainly had all. all I think I think it was maybe one or two original stories in it. Yeah. I pretty much had all the other stories scattered around here somewhere. And I might have had some of them in digital form, but I like the idea of having the book. So a short story writer still has the possibility of selling you an object at some point. Um, yes, but I think the thing to be aware of is the audience. The, first of all, the audience gets smaller in some ways because there's because there, there's not the same focused attention on a limited number of books. And also, um, <coughs> we have to be aware that there are practical thresholds in these things. Some of them have come down a bit, but... You know, it's like for a bookstore, you need a certain amount of turnover or the whole bookstore falls apart. You can't keep running it. You, for a press, you can't profitably be selling 200 copy, you know, print runs of things, you, you know, unless you're you know, selling them at an enormous price. You yeah. have to nudge it up above that to a certain practical amount. And that is, is what's going to be a problem. You, you know, you may find that um, digital models will work, but there'll be smaller turnovers. And, of course, this all then moves directly on to one of the critical things here, and that's what authors are getting paid. Yeah. Almost everywhere, and I do say almost because I can think of at least one exception, almost everywhere, pay rates for short fiction are going down and down and down. And they weren't high to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so that's real. You know, whilst it's all very well to quite accurately talk about writing short fiction as being something you do for the art of it and the money isn't the issue, that doesn't mean that these people don't want to get paid, you know. Um, it, it takes a lot of time to write very good short fiction. And I remember having, yeah, yeah. Uh, the conversation which I've had, and you may have had the same conversation with Tim Powers, that mm. he'll spend almost as much effort on a piece of short fiction, which is why he writes very little short fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of practicality for him. He's going to get X amount of dollars per day of work uh, for a novel and a, you know, a vastly smaller amount for the amount of work he puts on in short fiction. His short fiction is astonishingly well-crafted. Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, he pays for that. He pays yes. for that because he's not doing something that can earn him a living while he's doing that. And there's not um, just a matter of smaller amounts of money. Mm -hmm. It's the size of the readership. Right. Yeah. The, the, one of the questions that gets asked occasionally is, are we seeing short fiction go the way of poetry? And I don't <clears> know the answer to that, but it's possible. I don't think it'll ever become that much of a niche to the extent that it can only be published by university presses in tiny editions that are subsidized by grants. Uh, there is some of that going on already. I mean, again, a lot of what we look at as, an, as a looming disaster in, in the genre field has been the reality in, in, in mainstream literary fiction for a couple of decades sure, now. Sure, sure. I mean, the, 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 the sensitive slice of life, uh, people looking at each other over breakfast and thinking about divorce kind of story that used to be the uh, 
used to be the hallmark of the New Yorker and isn't anymore. The New Yorker fiction is actually pretty interesting. But those things, the, the stories that can't get into the New Yorker, the stories that never quite made it into the Atlantic, the stories that end up in, 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 in small literary magazines, uh, they've been living that life for quite a while now. So yeah. to some extent, in that, to that extent, the short story has already gone the way of poetry. Yeah. It's gone the way of subsidized presses, of very small print runs, of a lot of literary respect and, and, and having some publications that will possibly get you tenure if you teach in yep. an MFA program. That, that uh, said, so you know, there are still short fiction coming out. People are still, but even those people are still writing some terrific short fiction. Unfortunately, you're right. Fewer people read that than read the kind of fiction we're talking about. It's true. It's true. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at most of these small literary magazines, they would be envious even of Asimov's declining circulation. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, Asimov's declining circulation isn't that bad at all, actually. They're doing mm -hmm. quite well. Um, but none of the uh, – I don't think any of the big four magazines, whoever they may be today, are actually doing you know enormous numbers. I don't think any short fiction outlet is doing enormous numbers. And at the moment, I haven't seen any reliable numbers. I'm sure they're in somewhere I just haven't looked um, for readership for – Online stuff. I think Clark's World mm. has been doing better because I know they ran a campaign to add extra fiction to the magazine if they got enough digital subscribers. And I think right. that may have gone through, I seem to recall hearing. Though I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I heard that. So, yeah. Bit by bit. Are these, uh, where, uh, my, the other question that goes with the uh, with, with how, to, how to sell short fiction, as I said, is the question of the reader. Uh, and it interests me as to how people enter the field these days. Mm -hmm. And there's somebody who is <coughs> in high school or, or somebody who's 8 to 12 years old, which is the age that most of us talk about. How do they find this? And, I'm, 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 and one of the answers, I think, is that uh, the YA market, I think, is much more important than it used to be for sure. readers finding their way into the field. Yep. Um, and, and because it's for one thing, it's more sophisticated than the, the, than it was for much of its history. Uh, it's certainly better marketed. It looks better. Uh, you've got a lot of good YA fiction now. And again, I think of everybody from Suzanne uh, sure. Collins to Paolo Bacigalupi to Kathleen Dewey, where the parents would be perfectly happy to read the books as well. Uh, so it could be that uh, you know those of us who started reading science fiction in the magazines because the magazines were cheap and there was new stuff every month yep. um, that, that we're, we're, we're a gone generation now but but the kids today may think that once they've read some uh, you know their, their 14th YA dystopian novel they want to find something else <laughs> well yes I mean, I, I've got to say I mean you're right some of the YA stuff some of it's phenomenal I, I spent some time on the trip that I just got through um, reading Philip Reeve's new, one of his more recent novels, Fever Crumb, which was mm -hmm. terrific, Gary. It was really, really good. And yet, you know, not talked about very much. Oh. Well, a lot of YA fiction doesn't get talked about very much in our field, and it's one of the things that, as you know, it's it's, it's always been an issue with um, with reviewing it, Locus. There's YA fiction, which is, well, we've talked about Plains Runner before, some of the writers with Philip Reeve. Yeah. Uh, Philip Pullman. Uh, and then there's YA fiction, which is clearly a kind of category different from from what we're thinking about, which are the, uh, you know, the endless, I guess, the endless twilight replicas and that sort of thing. That, that, that seems to be a bubble separate from the kind of thing we're talking about, which is first-rate science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and some mixtures, mixtures of these things that are, 
absolutely uh, comparable to the best adult fiction in the field. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this the other day because one of the questions, as you know, I've been working on some uh, on questions of science fiction in the 50s, which frankly is when I started reading science fiction. I had to write an essay for my alumni magazine. It's mm-hmm. not anything that anybody's going to see. And it occurred to me that the 50s was a great decade to become a science fiction reader. Yeah. Um, you had, I mean, the, you know, the, the war was over, the depression was over. You had, uh, a, you, you had rockets going into outer space. You were finding out the structure of DNA. Computers were, were building giant skyscrapers and, and swooping highways. All the science fictional stuff of the 20s and 30s was coming into reality. And we were living in a science fiction world and we were going to go to the moon. When I joined the Book of the Month Club, <laughs> uh, I, I, I dug out one of these old things. I had, yep. I made a reservation for a round trip to the moon. That was one. Of, that was one of the things you'd get if you joined the science fiction book club. Really, it was terrific. You're not that anymore. You, you, you got a little wallet-sized postcard saying, you know, you filled your name and says has a reservation to the moon. You got a certificate and you got an absolute promise that the science fiction book club was going to save all these reservations and turn oh, them over wow, to the that's first. That's phenomenal. I love that. It was great. It was I, 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 ever since then. I've had this. Vision. This, the science fiction book club was owned by Doubleday in Garden City. Sure, and sure. Been, God knows, but I still think there's some wizened little clerk in a basement somewhere just hoarding all these, you know, <laughs> moon reservations. Wait, and, and and the thing is, when we were kids, we believed that that was going to happen. Oh, sure. We figured, okay, by the time I'm 40 or 50, sure. And we and that that was the optimistic part. The other naive part was we thought it was going to be TWA or Pan Am. <laughs> well, there's that. But come on, I remember, th- I'm and, sure I told you that uh, I absolutely is, completely believed when I was a kid that mm-hmm. I was going to be a geolo- geologist and live on Mars. There you go. When I, when I was seven, that's what I wrote in my school um, thing, my, my, my school newsletter, that I was, that I, when, I, when I grew up, I, when I was, I was going to be a geologist and live on Mars, and it seemed completely, absolutely, 100% achievable. And that would have been about when, if we don't mind. 1971. 80s? Oh, 71. Okay. I'm old, man. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, You're not supposed to say yes, you rat. Well, I can say yeah because I'm way old. I was just talking about growing up in the 50s, for heaven's sake. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, but yes, there I was. I mean, I have grandkids who ask me, did they have cars when you were a kid? The only answer is, of course, no. Of course not. No, we rode dinosaurs. Everybody knows that. Mm. But but the thing I was saying about the fifties is you had all that optimism. At the same time, you had we knew what atomic bombs could could do. We had civil defense. Solar. So so on the one hand, we were going to have build this great future, and we were going to live on Mars and on the moon. On the other hand, we were going to be blown up at any minute. So that was a perfectly poised moment to become a science fiction reader because anything that science fiction could possibly say to you, from complete nuclear holocaust to having colonies on Mars. One of the others was going to happen. Yes, I think that's absolutely And I true. wonder if those, and you're talking about the 70s. Uh, I wonder if there are certain periods in history that generate more science fiction readers than other because of those kinds of cultural tensions that you lived through. Maybe. I, that, that sounds feasible to me, yes. I, I don't know for sure, though, but I, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were true. And, it, and you can't measure that by the science fiction that was written because science fiction had created its own subculture decades ago but I, I it's I, and there's no way to test this hypothesis as i know but did did more readers uh start reading science fiction in the 50s 
than in the 40s, probably, uh, because the 40s was the war. Mm -hmm. uh, you could figure a lot of people read science fiction during the 30s because of the Depression, but the kind of science fiction they were reading was space opera and very much escapist kind of things. Um, the 60s, I don't know. I don't know if the 60s was a good decade to become a science fiction reader because it was too science fictional a decade to begin with. That might be the case. I mean, it certainly was making real both the apocalypses, the, the assassinations, the wars, and the moon landing. All that stuff happened. Who needed science fiction? It did indeed. You know what, Gary? What? Well, you're not rambling. We're rambling. But I'm Are fading. we rambling? No, no, you're not rambling. I'm fading. I think ah. I'm about to become the victim of um, of jet lag. I think we need to wind up our first return podcast. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And I think you've been heroic at staying awake <laughs> this long because I know you only got in, what, yesterday afternoon? Yes, yesterday afternoon. And yes, sort of have to, have to be back into it and all that kind of thing, which is a little bit tiresome. But I, I sort of apologize for being less awesome company than I could be. And we will be back podcasting. We're back podcasting regularly. We, we, we've had yes. previous podcasts. And we've got, other, we've got some exciting plans coming up. We'll be talking to a few friends of ours in coming installments of the podcast. So hopefully all is well. And all those people who saw me wearing Cood Street podcast T-shirts when we were over there, even those of you who are small, particularly told me that they, they were small, uh, mm -hmm. we, we'll do what we can to make Cood Street podcast T-shirts available in the coming months. Maybe before Christmas. Could be a perfect Christmas gift for someone. Could be a perfect Christmas gift, yes, for, especially for people that you want to puzzle. <laughs> and on that happy note, it's I been great talking to you again, Gary. And I will talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Have a good night's rest or a good day's rest. I absolutely fully intend to. Excellent. Okay. Take care. Bye. Goodbye.